We are, if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, to verse 4, we are moving through this passage. We got off to a running leap last time, studied the first three words of verse 4. We're going to shift gears into overdrive today and move a little farther, but we will not finish verse 4. And eventually we'll work our way through the passage. But the idea in this section, running from verse 4 to verse 10, is that of spiritual privilege that we have as Christians. I think this passage is important for a lot of reasons, but one of them is this idea that as we work toward holiness in the Christian life, as we work even toward obeying what we find in verse 1 of chapter 2, if you look there, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking, as we seek to live a sanctified life, sometimes I think we become so preoccupied with the putting away part and the elimination of sin part that we can actually become even discouraged and morbid, preoccupied only with our own sin. What Peter does strategically here is he mentions that and then reminds us of the goodness of the Lord and what we've tasted so far, then moves into cataloging all these privileges for us that we have in Christ and the idea there in coming to Him. So he's lifting us, inspiring us, and encouraging us, having called us to holiness by causing us then to be mindful of all the privileges that we have in the Christian life so that the end result is we long to partake of these privileges and it's the experience of the privileges that replace the experiences of sin that we're throwing out of our life. You see what he's doing? It's tremendous. So that there isn't this negative thing always, my sin, my sin, my sin, but rather look at all that is here for me in Christ in the end, you get so caught up in the blessings and the privileges of the Christian life that you forget about those sins that you used to do because you've traded them in on something so much more satisfying and fulfilling. Thus, to understand our privileges is to find a great life in Christ. So, here's the passage. Let's read through it, shall we? We read here, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And on he goes, quoting the scripture, but we're not going to go all the way through, so I'm not going to read it all here today. We're going to look at verse 4. Last time we began here, in looking at our privileges, we began by talking about the greatest privilege of all, and that is Christ. That we can come to Him. And what we concerned ourselves with in the last message was the person of Christ coming to Him. For Peter, Christianity was ever and always all about Him and a relationship with Him. I want to move a little farther now and talk about the next thing, which is the life and stability of Christ. He says, coming to Him as to a living stone. 
Now, I think it's worthwhile to slow down and dwell on this living stone thing because it's really the key to the whole passage. We will move quicker as we move away from this, but for today, I just want you to understand what he's saying here. If you don't understand this, all these other mentions of cornerstone, stumbling stone, all these other things will not have any meaning for you. So what does he mean about coming to a living stone? Well, I think it's all about life and stability, really, in Christ. See, Peter thinks of him as he's writing as a living stone. And again, you have to ask the question, what did he have on his mind as he wrote this? Was there some incident in his life that would cause him to see Christ as a living stone? Because when you look at the phrase living stone, it's kind of a weird one, isn't it? I mean, you think of stone, and the last thing you think of is life. In fact, we have a phrase we use, it's called stone dead. If you really want to describe how dead something is, you say stone dead, as opposed to say only mostly dead, that kind of thing. But coming to a living stone, it's all about life. And I think Peter had something on his mind that caused him to see Christ as a living stone. And I think you can find it in Matthew 16. Could you turn there in your Bible? Matthew 16. Looking at verse 16. You know, as we walk with Christ, we have these milestone experiences, don't we? One day, they were walking down the road and they were journeying along, Jesus and his disciples, and they came to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which if you've been to Israel is in a wonderful little place where the Jordan River has its source. It comes right out from the base of the mountain there. It's just a beautiful, peaceful place. And Jesus used to like to go there and hang out and rest with his disciples where there was a certain day that was a milestone day in the life of Peter. And that is when at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus turned to them and he said, Who are people saying that I am? What are you picking up from the crowd? And they began to volunteer answers. Some say this, some say that. He said, Fine, fine, fine. Now let me ask you the real question. Who do you guys think that I am? Suddenly, God touched Peter. And he said, in Matthew sixteen sixteen, he said, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Now, notice the emphasis on living. Living God. Peter, as he went along in life, became more and more absorbed with this whole idea of living. And as he thought of it, he related it to God, who he had come to discover at this point, was a living God. Thus, a God you can interact with, not just a force out there that you could someday be swallowed up into after, you know, thousands of reincarnations and lifetimes. He saw him as a living God, someone who was alive and wanted to impart his life to you, and that he was wanting to do that through Jesus Christ. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then living stone. He was all absorbed in the life God wanted to give us. And so... Jesus responds in verse 17, and he, and he answered, and he said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I love the fact that he confirms what was on Peter's heart, the living God. Yes, he is a living God. He does communicate, and what you have just said, he communicated that personally to you. 
Blessed are you. You have just interacted with the living God. And he has shown you that I am the Christ. And then this. He says, And I say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, as Matthew records these words of Jesus, there is a play on words in the Greek that Jesus used. When he said, you, I say to you, you are Peter, the Greek word that he used, comes across Peter to us, was the word petros, petros. It means a small throwable stone. So any of you that have ever stood by a lake or a creek and skimmed stones across the water, you've done that? That's a small throwable stone, Petros. I say to you, you are Petros. And the idea is that it, it as a name, means uh, rock or rock man. He's the original rock man. So he says, I say to you, you are the rock man, which meant something different then than it would mean to us today. And thus, he speaks to him in that way. Then he says, And on this rock, you are Petros. And on this rock, and he uses a different word, Petra, I will build my church. You are a small throwable stone. But on this Petra, which means an immovable ledge of rock, by contrast, On this immovable ledge of rock, I will build my church. What is he saying? He is saying that he is that immovable rock. That Peter has been given revelation that he is the Christ. And on the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the church is built. There is no word here about Peter being the foundation of the church, as some have taught. Not a word at all. The word here is Christ is the foundation of the church. Further, he even says, I will build my church. So you look at this and you get Peter. He's writing now his epistle. What do you think he's thinking about? I think that milestone day in his life. When Jesus was there with him and said, I am the rock on which the church will be built and I will build my church. I think he's thinking back to that. And in his mind is, Jesus Christ is all about life and stability. Life and stability. You see, when Jesus said, answered him, look at at verse 17. Let's just go through Peter's part of it here. In Matthew 16, 17, Jesus answered him and said, what's the name? Blessed are you, what? Simon, Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon. That's the name you always had growing up. I say to you, you are Peter. He's renaming him. This is a promise of life and stability to him. He renames him. And in doing so, it is a promise of life and stability. You see, Peter was anything but a rock man. He was anything but stable. And you find that. Just follow him around the Gospels, you know. He's full of excitement and emotion, but stable, that's another issue. But by the time he writes, coming to him as a living stone, that living stone had imparted life and stability to him. And he looks back on the day when Jesus renamed him and said, 
You are rock man. You have been Simon, but I'm going to make you something new and different. I'm going to make you a stable man, a man filled with the, this life of this living God you talk about. That's what I'm going to do. So the name Peter was the promise to him of life and stability that Jesus would cultivate within him as the years went by. And he was true to that promise, wasn't he? Peter was such a rock that he went all the way to the death, never denied Jesus again after that initial denial. But when you look at the promise of life and stability to Peter, and you read his writing and he says to us, coming to him as a living stone, you get the idea? It becomes a promise to you and I of life and stability. You see, outside, and we're going to talk about this more in detail in another message, but outside of Christ, what is your existence all about? It's all about death and instability. Death literally, as you see your friends die, overdose, drugs, alcohol, killed in car wrecks, whatever. It's the whole world outside of Christ is filled with death. But in the biggest sense, the largest sense, spiritual death. And you don't know that until you come to Him and He quickens you with life. And then you know how dead you really were. If you're truly a Christian here today, you look back on your life before Christ, your BC days, your life before Christ as a bad dream, as a bad something kind of existence that someone else had and that you're not the same person. That's how I look at it. So it is a promise to us when he says, coming to him as a living stone of life and stability. You see, we talked about this recently. Could you turn in your Bible to John six thirty-five? I just want to key on this for a minute. John six thirty-five. In our last study in John, on Jesus is the bread of life, he says a similar thing in different words. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, in that study, I pointed out that obviously this is not a statement of having a perfect life. I mean, you can get the details by getting the tape, but if you come to Christ as the bread of life, and he says you will never hunger and you will never thirst, what is he talking about? Is he saying you would never want to drink again if you had a drinking problem before? Is he saying you never want to take drugs again? Is he saying you never want to be immoral again? That you would never be tempted again? To hunger and thirst after the things of the world, what is he saying? Obviously, he's not saying that. Because we are all living testimonies, right? That he's not saying that. What then is he saying? And so we discussed that what he was saying is, you will no longer hunger and thirst for the answers to the critical issues of your life that created so much instability in your life. In other words, you will no longer hunger and thirst to know the ultimate truth about God in your life. Who is He? Does He exist? Is He alive? Does He speak? And if He does, can I talk to Him? And if He is alive, can I know Him? The answers to the ultimate truth about God in your life. Another thing was that you would no longer hunger and thirst to know the ultimate cure for guilt in your life. The ultimate cure for guilt in your life. Sin brings guilt. You sin, you have guilt. And so you go through your life not knowing Christ, 
trying to deal with it, right? And so you, it's a never-ending search of what do I do about this guilt that comes from the things that I can't stop doing. You come to Christ and you find He is the ultimate answer to your guilt. And then, as you find forgiveness in His cross, and then you will never hunger and thirst because you will no longer thirst for the ultimate purpose of your life. You see, when you don't understand God as He relates to you, when you can't find a cure for your guilt, when you can't figure out the ultimate purpose for your life, are you unstable? You could be nothing else, could you? And then He says, you will never hunger and you will never thirst. The idea is you will quit thirsting for the ultimate relationship in life because you will find it in me. And that is so tremendous. You see, when Peter says coming to him is a living stone, he's talking about life and stability. He's talking about the end of the search. A brother came up to me after that message and he says, I have the, the title for this message. I said, what? He said, the search is over. The search, the hungering and the thirsting for all these answers. The search is over. That's the title. So I have gone back and retitled that message to the search is over. Coming to him as a living stone means the search is over. You're at the end of the line for the search for the answers to life's greatest questions. The ultimate relationship. Those of you that are single here today and hoping God brings that special person into your life. Looking for that perfect woman. Brothers, keep on looking. You'll never find her because she doesn't exist. And the one that finds you will find out there's no perfect man as well. You see, the perfect human being doesn't exist. You get married and you marry into disappointment, don't you? You marry into frustration. Why? Because you're marrying a sinner, a human being. And so you think you found the ultimate relationship only to find that you didn't and that you can't in another person. But you come to Christ as the living stone, the bread of life, and you have found the ultimate relationship in life. He alone will not let you down. He alone will not frustrate you. He alone will love you with a perfect love. So the search is over when you come to the bread of life, the living stone. These are saying the same things. So, are you still in Matthew? Stay right there. Go back there. Um, put your thumb in First Peter and go back to Matthew. I want to keep working these thoughts together. I'm sorry. Coming to him as a living stone, it's a promise of new life and stability. It was in Peter's life. It becomes a promise of life and stability for you and I. It is also, as he reflects back on it, thinks what God has done in his life, churches he's planted... I'm certain it was also to him a promise of life and stability for the church. For the church. Coming to him as a living stone, you remember, look at Matthew 6.18 again. Jesus said, I say to you, you are Peter. And yet on this rock, which is him, Jesus, I will build my church. You see, it's a promise of life and stability that Peter is giving us for Christ's church because Christ said he would build his church. He's a living stone. What does that mean? It means he's alive. He brings about all growth in the church. 
with his life. He is the stone. He himself said he was the cornerstone. He is the ultimate focus, the centrality of Christ in the church, because he is the cornerstone of the church. You could never move away from him and still have him building your church. And he builds the church by his life. I will build my church. Turn to Ephesians 2.20. You're free from Matthew now. But I just want to add to the thought there. Ephesians 2.20. And again, I'm really trying to get us into this whole idea of the living stone so the rest of the passage and Peter will have greater meaning to us. In Ephesians 2.20, we find this idea coming from Paul the Apostle. He says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, foundation in what sense? That their doctrine is the foundation of the church, but their doctrine in so much as it comes from Christ, you see. So they as individuals aren't the foundation of the church. God has used their teaching, which came from Christ, to build the church. But notice, He Himself is the rock that it's built on. Look, verse 20. Ephesians 2.20, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, their teaching, Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone. So that he said, I will build my church on this rock, me. He says, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are builded up, builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So you see, how is the church built What is the promise of life and stability for the church, for us as a church? It is this, that we, as Paul says here, allow God to build His church. That we allow Him to do the building. That we allow Him to take our lives, as verse 21 says, and build us fitly framed together. That we allow God by His Spirit, as it says at the end of verse 22, to bring that life. To bring that life together with the foundation of the stone, the living stone, the cornerstone, so that Jesus Christ himself is building us together, verse 22, for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So who builds the church? Jesus Christ. Thus, here we have the model for every local church. To keep Christ central, that is the central focus of all the messages that come from the pulpit. And all the messages down through all the other ministries. To keep Christ central, to keep an emphasis on His power that He does it. And then to realize that our place is simply then to follow Him. If He will build His church, I don't want to compete with Him. You say, well, how could you do that? By doing this. By going after every kind of church growth program that's out there. By running after this and running after that and terrorizing all of you with endless programs. And when you tire of one, we figure out we got to get a new one to keep you guys excited. And so you end up with these endless programs for church growth and they work for a while and then they have a shelf life. You throw it out and get a new program. How much better? to let Jesus build His church. Then we're freed from all these programs. 
So we in this church have sought to follow that, and what a tremendous freedom has been there. What are your programs for building your church? Keeping Christ central and letting Him lead us. What does that mean? It means we pray and we obey. It means we pray and we wait. What are you doing about a marriage ministry? Waiting on the Lord, we said for a long time. Until God showed us the right ministry. And then God showed us the right person. See, some of you are aching and craving for a certain type of ministry here in the church. And why isn't it here, you say? I've gone to such and such a church that have a great program for that. Fine. But you see, we're waiting on Jesus' program. We're waiting on Jesus' ministry in this church for that situation. And we're also waiting for Him to raise up the right person to lead it. You understand? You can get a program and install it like a module in any church. But getting the right person, that is another issue, to lead it. So we wait on the Lord. We wait on His will. We wait on His guidance. Hoping then that as we follow Him and trusting that He will bless His ministry as He builds His church and we follow. You understand? It is such a great place of freedom. And you know what happens as you work in that way? You find this kind of phrase coming from people and their mouths. This kind of thing. Wow, you know, I'm amazed at what God has done. And I can tell you as the pastor of this church, I am amazed at what God has done. And He has done it. Jesus is building our church. And His concern is always more with you than numbers. He's always concerned more with the transformation, the life and the stability in your life than He is with how many heads are counted in the building on a given Sunday. You know, like the churches where they have the thing on the wall, attendance last Sunday, such and such, tithing this such and such, attendance this Sunday, such and such. The deacon comes out at the end of the service, puts the tithe up from the end of that service. I never liked going to those places. So we don't have it here, do you notice? We don't have any of those things here. You notice there's no stained glass windows? You notice there's no incense? You notice I'm wearing a, a non-clergy outfit? That's because Jesus builds His church. And we want to follow Him. And I just thank God for that kind of legacy. I think of what Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa has done and Pastor Chuck Smith, and I've thought about this a lot after watching him for 25 years and seeing him basically, he's doing today what he did when in 1971 I went to the first Bible study I ever heard him give. He's never changed. He's keeping Christ central. He's drawing the people to the Word to find the living stone behind the Word and interact with Him and find life and stability in Christ and all the fruit that has come forth from that. No programs. Christ. He builds the church. And it's a tremendous thing to be a part of that. And so it's a promise of life and stability for the church. If Christ is the central focus, if He is the center of the preaching, and if His life and His power is depended on, so that we as individuals go continually to Him. Lord, what do you want for my life? What is my place in this church? You're building this church together. Paul said you're building it, Ephesians 2.21, fitly framed together. And that in verse 22 he said, in whom you are also building together a habitation for yourself. So Lord, where do I fit into that? 
And then you follow the work, the life of the Spirit as He leads you. And you know what happens? You find that the church then, the church is alive and it's stable. And it has real life, real vitality. And there's a stability there. And that is the promise of life and stability to the church that comes out of this phrase and coming to Him as to a living stone. But one other thought here before we move on from that. Do you notice Ephesians 2.22 says, In whom you also, in whom you also, are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Builded together. You know what that says? It says, in, in coming to Him as a living stone, you come to the end of your life as the Lone Ranger. Now, some of you people are people, people. And you're, you're never alone. You can't stand it. But some of you are Lone Rangers. We know who you are. I used to be a Lone Ranger my whole life. But you see, when I came to Christ, when I came to the living stone, that made me a part of the family. Peter will go on to say in 1 Peter 2, 5, You also as living stones. Now connected with him, the living stone, you become a living stone. And you are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. So what happens is the day you come to the living stone and find life and stability in him and you yourself become a living stone, the day of the Lone Ranger is over. Has it ended for you, or are you trying to still live it? May I say this? you live as a lone ranger, you will be disconnected from God's plan for your life because He's building us together. Together. We are linked together. And in being linked together, each one of us having our place, we find the purpose of our life, and our place in the body of Christ. We're going to talk about that in detail in another message. But I just want to ask you this. Are you still a Lone Ranger? Or have you become part of the family? Have you understood that you're to be a stone as part of the building where they're all linked perfectly together? And are you finding your place in the wall, as it were, of that building? You must leave behind the life of the Lone Ranger. There are no holy Lone Rangers if you're a Lone Ranger and you don't hear another thing today, remember this. There are no holy Lone Rangers. You cannot live holy all alone. And that's why we live together in a community, in a family. We fight together. We work together. We labor together. And in being together, we find the strength and the encouragement that enables us to live that different life. We live it together. Anyway, build it together in the church, life and stability through Christ as He builds His church. So, the life and stability of Jesus Christ. There's one other thing I want to point out to you here. Peter says, in coming to Him, that's the person of Christ. He says, in coming to Him as a living stone, that's the life and stability of Christ. He says in 1 Peter 2.4, in coming to Him as a living stone rejected indeed by men. So, when we look at our spiritual privileges, and the first one is Christ. The believer's Christ is the greatest of privileges. We see that a part of that privilege is that we come to Him. We come to Him as a living stone. But also, we see this rejected indeed by men. 
And we are now joined to him. I want you to follow me on a thought here in terms of the human rejection of Jesus Christ. Men, you see, chose to reject him. And they did it in a couple of ways, mainly through persecution and crucifixion. Turn in your Bible, could you, to Matthew 12. Matthew 12 to verse 9. Think of this. God came to planet Earth to live here. You would have expected the human race to go rushing in to greet Him. Instead, they rejected Him. Not only did they reject Him, but it was an aggressive rejection. They went on to persecute Him, to try to inflict injury upon Him. We find this in Matthew twelve nine. Jesus, it says, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath these wicked men taking advantage of this poor guy afflicted to use him to trap Jesus? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? How about you guys? Let me ask you a question. You ever have a sheep fall in a pit? Did you lift him out on the Sabbath? Well, then, what are you doing trying to trap me with doing some little good deed on the Sabbath when even you guys do this? And you can just hear them quieting down. You can probably hear a pin drop. Their faces are turning red partly from embarrassment and partly from anger that, that he's frustrating their plan to trap him, he outwitted them. And then he says in verse 12, of how much more value than is a man than a sheep, therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and was restored as whole as the other. You would think they would start cheering. Yeah, now this is the way to do good on the Sabbath. Heal a man who's been all paralyzed and crippled up in his hand. Now that's what doing good on the Sabbath is all about. But did they respond that way? No. Look at how they responded. Verse 14, And the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. It's amazing. And so they began to plot to kill him. And they persecuted him all through his public ministry. The human rejection of Jesus Christ... And then they persecuted him ultimately through his crucifixion. They killed him. But he knew they were going to do it and he told them so. Could you go to Matthew twenty-one thirty-three? And he says here, Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. That's basically what God did with Israel. Made them like a vineyard and gave them everything they needed. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers as they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. That would be the prophets, right? Sent to them, killed by them. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And last of all, he sent his son saying, Surely they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Now, these guys that are plotting to kill him, he snuck up on them again. 
And the answer is, they said to him, Well, he'll destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render it to him the fruits in their seasons. Now Jesus comes back at them and he says, And have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Look, I know you're plotting to kill me. What you don't know is that I'm the cornerstone. And what you don't know from the scriptures you've been reading over your whole lives is that you are the ones rejecting the cornerstone. And that your plot to destroy me is nothing more than a detailed fulfillment of the scripture prophesying long ago of this event. And you and your blindness and wickedness are missing it. And look what happens. He says in verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That's the Gentiles. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. That's when you come to Christ in humility. You confess your sin and in your brokenness He gives you forgiveness and life. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That's the judgment to those non-believers, Christ rejectors. Now, When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived, notice, he was talking about them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. They wanted to kill him right there. So men chose to reject him. Now, follow this thought. Men will choose to reject us because we follow him. You see, here is the most perfect human being that has ever lived in front of these men. Their rejection of him tells us something very important about men in general, human beings. That they are utterly lacking, utterly void in the ability to properly assess the worth of another life. So that when the most valuable life ever lived was here on the planet, they rejected him and counted him in all of his worth as worthless. So what that tells me is that if they rejected Christ, the most perfect and the most worthy of all human beings, then man's assessment of a life Gaining man's favor when Christ couldn't even gain the favor of the men around him in general, then I realize that is a worthless endeavor. To sit around worrying about what other people think of me, what people that reject Christ think of me as I follow him, is, is meaningless to me now. And now what matters most to me is this that to me he is precious. That the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner, chosen by God, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. And I see their rejection of him, and I see how worthless their judgment is, and how blind, and I realize that to God he is precious, and now to me he has become precious, and I no longer care whether I gain the favor of the non-believing world or not, that is not my objective. My objective now is to gain the favor of the one who is precious, Jesus Christ, and to live for His favor, not for the favor of men. Their criteria to judge is totally off base. What a freedom 
to come to the place in life where we understand they rejected him, they'll reject me. And they have demonstrated their total inability to judge properly. Therefore, I'm not going to worry about their judgments on me. But rather the one who can judge properly, and that is Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said in John fifteen twenty, he said, Remember the word I said to you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. If, you have kept, if they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. The pe- kind of people that responded to me, he said, will respond to you. Look for that. But in general, the kind that rejected me will reject you. Look for that. And they did. And you know what they found? They found his word to be painfully true. In Acts 5.40, they called the apostles and they beat them. Painfully true. And they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. They found his word to be painfully true. But you know what? They found it to be an honor to be rejected by men with Christ. It says in Acts 5.41, And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And they not only found it painfully true and found it to be an honor, but they never let it hold them back. We read, And daily in the temple and in every house, Acts 5.42, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Have you allowed the rejection of men to get you down? Have you been looking for the favor of people around you, even in your family, in your neighborhood, from people that reject Christ? Have you thought they wouldn't reject you? Have you allowed it to slow you down? Have you moped around in your life? Well, I'm not serving the Lord then if I'm going to get all this rejection. The apostles counted it an honor and it never slowed them down. Neither should it slow us down. If they rejected the most perfect man who ever lived and his message and we follow him, they will reject us. Paul said in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my body what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. In other words, men still hate Christ. Men still persecute Christ. Men would still like to destroy Christ. And that's why I have scars all over my body, he says. But you know what? I take it gladly. Because those blows that fall on me are meant for him. And I thank God I'm worthy to stand in his name and represent him to this world because he's made me his child. It's an honor. And all that does, that rejection, is drive me in closer to Him. Because to me, He is chosen of God and precious, though He is rejected by men. Will you allow God to liberate you with this truth today? To bring life and stability to you as you come to the living stone. This is what He has for you. This is your spiritual privilege to live for His glory to live a stable life, and to live in his power. This is the beginning of what Peter has to say to us about our spiritual privilege. Let's pray, shall we? Father, you have so blessed us. Help us, Lord, to savor the blessedness of being able to come to you and find life and stability. Lord, we will give you all the glory as we go on to, even in the face of rejecting men and women, 
draw nearer to you and find that you are truly precious to us, that you are the living God, that you impart your life to us in so many wonderful ways. We do thank you for this and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.